0: Hello everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Robert Tasca, Managing Director of Derivative Products and Services at the Montreal Exchange TMX Group. Welcome to TMX Presents The Podcast. This is where we have conversations with capital market leaders from around the world. We look to gain insights from a wide range of decision makers, market practitioners, and visionaries helping shape the business landscape. This episode, we will focus On the fixed income market in canada and what investors should be thinking about in today's environment we'll discuss the state of the market some macro trends and of course how derivatives play an important role in investment portfolios i'm excited to host this episode and today we are joined by my guests kevin jimnicki and dominic siciliano but before we dive in i wanted to give you some background on the montreal exchange for those that aren't aware We are Canada's oldest exchange and now a fully electronic marketplace dedicated to the development of the Canadian derivative markets. This includes futures and options on equity, fixed income, and alternative asset classes. I am privileged to be responsible for the products of the Montreal Exchange, which includes optimizing the current offering and developing new products that serve both domestic and international investors and traders. So for today, we have two seasoned fixed income market professionals, starting with Kevin. Kevin has spent over 10 years managing fixed income, relative value portfolios as a portfolio manager, first at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and then Bluecrest Capital Management. During that time, he managed domestic cash bond portfolios, as well as international leveraged alpha portfolios. Kevin is also an active contributor and writer in educating and highlighting the use of derivatives in portfolios for the Montreal exchanges community of clients. Next up we have Dominic Siciliano. Dominic is a senior vice president head of fixed income at industrial alliance investment management. Dominic has 25 years of experience working in the financial markets. He is responsible to lead the development of the fixed income teams to bring new innovative products to the market while delivering superior returns for their clients. Gentlemen, I'm excited to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Rob. Glad to be here.
1: Same here. Thanks, Rob.
0: So gentlemen, let's kick things off and talk about the current state of the market. The pandemic is over two years ago. We all know there was a massive injection of cash from central banks and governments from around the world. This, of course, was to stimulate the economy and get us through this. We're coming out the other side and now it's a different story being played out. We're trying to balance between keeping a lid on inflation and a healthy economy. We're all talking about our grocery bills and gas prices and jealous that our neighbors ordered uh, an electric car last year. We're all feeling that impact of purchasing power, inflation, and of course we know the need to raise interest rates, but we're keeping a close eye on what central banks are doing and how markets are responding to this. So maybe Dominic we'll start with you if you could share what you and perhaps your firm and clients are thinking about and what do those conversations look like
1: Thanks Rob well first of all in this environment I mean it's it's a new it's a new environment for a lot of investors who have not seen inflation we've seen moderate inflation and we've not seen inflation in terms of expectations and actual numbers really above the trends that the central banks follow. So one of the historical contexts, if you like, to that situation is when you have rising inflation way above, I think, where central banks want to keep inflation, let's say two and a half, three 3%, that range, and you have a rising yield environment, it leads to asset price volatility. So it's very difficult for clients to navigate through that because all asset prices are being moved around, whether it's enormous rallies on the commodity side to a sell-off in the bond market and sell-off in the equity markets. So that's one of the first things for clients to get their head around is uh, the inflation piece. And it makes sense because inflation, when you think about it, is just price uncertainty. We don't know what things are going to cost in 12 months, 24 months and further down the line. So that uncertainty leads to more volatility in the system Place So that's definitely being played out in the markets right now. And the central banks sort of have a very difficult mission here to try to, I would say, crash land the plane without causing a recession. A few weird things that happened just this week. When you look at the Bank of England, they raised rates and right away mentioned the word recession, which is not something I think I've seen central banks do a rate hike and then talk about a recession possibility in the same sentence. So there's a lot of that in the marketplace and it makes for a big increase in the volatility.
0: Fantastic points, Dominic. And Kevin, we were discussing this in the past, but what are your views on the topic? I mean, naturally, is this sort of par for the course and have we seen this play out in the past?
2: Well, I think Dominic is absolutely right, uh, especially his comment about not a lot of investors have have seen this type of inflation. I looked back at the sell-off so far in fixed income markets. And the inflation-driven sell-off this time is over nine months has been larger than any sell-off in Canadian bonds since 1994. To put that in context, 1994 is still talked about among uh, bond professionals as the year of the bloodbath in bonds, 20, 30 years on. So this is now an event that will probably live on in in market lore for years to come. It's been about 190 basis points in in five-year bonds so far. And I think... From a, from a nitty-gritty, unusually, due to the Bank of Canada bond purchase program, uh, Canada's version of quantitative easing, the curve was flat at low yields when they started this hiking cycle, and they've only really just begun. And it's continued to flatten during the sell-off. So that's quite important for investing in fixed income, because typically you can earn some sort of uh, roll-down in the curve. But that is not likely to happen at this point, because the curve is still relatively flat.
1: If I could just add to that, I think what's really interesting is too, is when you have so much price uncertainty due to inflation and inflation tends to be, if you start believing that the we're going to be way above expectations for a little while, I mean, you would expect to see the curve steepen, but to your point, it's not the case. And there might be some technical natures due to how Canada issues long bonds and how that space works in Canada, but it's, it's planetary right now. So is it the market telling the central banks that it's a policy mistake already? If you look at the Federal Reserve in terms of what they're telling the market is that I think there's debate beginning of the year what the terminal rate would look like. Terminal rate probably, you know, where they think that the equilibrium point was probably 170, 175 for the market. Now the Fed is sticking to its guns, which it always indicated two and a half. But right away, as soon as we look at the forecast for the implied Fed fund rates, we're going to touch 3%. 3.10, that's in 2024, beginning 2025, right away, two rate cuts are being expected by the marketplace too. So people feel that rates are going to move up, but there's still a cap on how they can go at this point.
2: The same phenomenon can be found in the the Canadian yield curve at this point. I mean, we talk about how big the sell-off is, but the market is still really pricing inflation as a temporary phenomenon. If you look at long-term forward yields implied by the long end of the yield curve in Canada, suggests that inflation is still going to be rather normal about two percent average another way of measuring that is through breakeven inflation which is the market's prediction of what inflation will be at various points in the future 10-year real yields moved higher of course from actually negative 50 basis points to plus 70. that implies along with nominal yields that a 10-year breakeven inflation moved from a range of about 1.8 to 2.1 percent it was fluctuated in there even during the pandemic to about 2.4% now. Um, Over 10 years, 2.4%. I mean, that's uh, higher than 2%, which is the the bank's stated target, but it's not really that much, right? We're not talking about 6% implied or anything like that. It's really just 2.4%. Even now, after what I just mentioned was the most aggressive nine-month sell-off in Canada bonds since 1994, we're still not really pricing a lot of inflation, just a temporary phenomenon of inflation.
0: So guys, when we're, we're definitely talking about the, the impacts of inflation, the impacts of interest rates, if we switch gears a little bit and talk about derivatives and how they play a role in portfolios. For the listeners, the Montreal Exchange, our products are here to manage the impacts of rising or falling interest rate environments. And we specialize in short-term interest rates, bond futures. And over the past several years, with the help of our clients and, and partners, we managed to build out a Canadian... Government of Canada listed bond curve that is transparent and available to the global market near 24 hours a day. So on the the fixed income side, we've always been known for our flagship product, which is the CGB, the 10-year Government of Canada bond future that's been around for decades. And of course, a three-month banker's acceptance futures on the short-term interest rate side. Again, over the last couple of years, we started with launching a five-year Government of Canada bond future, an important part of the Canadian financial market. And with much success, we were able to continue rolling out the offering by listing a two-year bond future and most recently a 30-year bond future. In addition, I I will say that we also launched a Canadian overnight repo rate average future, and that's, of course, to assist with the benchmark transition in Canada. And We'll likely have another episode on that topic. But why am I bringing this up? It seems to be, in our view, there's growing appetite for these products and whether it's for adoption of effective risk management or just efficient exposure. Kevin, you write quite a few articles highlighting these benefits and and using these products. What can you share with the listeners?
2: Well, I certainly agree that the most important development in fixed income derivatives in Canada over the last 10 years has been that now there is available a full curve of instruments, everything from the Canadian overnights, CORA, to uh, bankers acceptance, which has existed for years, of course. Twos are now available in bonds, fives, tens were always available, but now 30-year bond futures are available as well. And that means that throughout the entire yield curve in Canada, the benefits of standardized fixed income derivatives are now available literally to, to anybody who's able to trade futures. Dominic can probably touch on uh, perhaps a few specifics of how a firm can use these things, but the reality is that there are a number of benefits. Just to, to list off a few, they're, they're self-financing, so there's no need to borrow bonds. If you do a short sale of bonds, you don't need to borrow them from your dealer and, or for a long position, you don't need to, to raise cash if you're gonna use leverage. There's fast execution, it's usually electronic, very easy. I mentioned already the leverage, but it's embedded. It's often quite cheap by comparative standards, especially for smaller clients. Balance sheet costs, if those exist at your firm, are mostly eliminated, even for short-term bonds where the notional amounts are often just, just huge and, and eat up balance sheet like crazy. Futures typically draw much lower balance sheet costs at almost all firms. You have no need to deal with coupon payments or receipts on cash positions to, be, to reinvest or anything like that, it's a derivative. And of course, there are some drawbacks. Primarily, leverage brings additional risk. So derivative trading approvals at, at a lot of clients, client firms, they they can be slow initially. And understanding and knowledge of the product is key. Derivatives themselves are not dangerous, but embedded leverage in them and the misunderstood risk that can sometimes be created can be dangerous. So it's not entirely easy, but there's a lot of benefits for firms that they want to take advantage of, of fixed income derivatives in Canada. And those products are now available.
1: If I would add to that, there's another benefit to the derivative curve is price discovery. The OTC market's very opaque. So for issuers, and we are also an issuer in the market, we issue bonds. It gives you more transparency. You have an ability to understand what the actual you know rate curve looks like. And that's why it's really important. Um, I mean, the leverage aspect as you mentioned, are things that may be always viewed as a negative thing. But in terms of portfolio optimization, risk-adjusted returns, derivatives are phenomenal for that. We use it a lot in our duration management. It's a quick, efficient way to move your duration rapidly. And then you can unwind those trades and reapply it if you like credit or other sectors of the curve or bonds underlying. And there's a growing, growing need for alpha strategies where we're doing a lot of, I would say, like soft hedge fund work, a lot of relative value trading. So it's really quick and efficient for us to buy CAD US using the futures contracts, BUNS versus Canada, bonds versus other products. So for us, it's been a really good source of alpha portfolios. And to the same points you guys made, quick, efficient. It's really a necessity today in fixed income investing.
2: I think additionally, it's important to point out that easy access to futures has actually enabled some of the types of trades that you just mentioned there, Dominic. For cer- for certain yeah. clients, some clients, of course, had always been able to do them, but Short positions have sometimes been a struggle, so for either speculation or hedging, curve trades, which necessarily involves a short position, so you buy one futures contract, sell a different term futures contract, and and get a, a curve steepener or curve flattener. Even curvature trades in 2s, five stands or five stands thirties can now be done in the Canadian yield curve, and they can be done in the, in very very small size. In fact, even a retail client could could do a curvature trade. I'm not recommending that they do necessarily, <laughs> but it is possible you can do these things for one contract, right? Actually, maybe you can expound on that a little bit at your firm, but I think it's particularly important as volatility comes back into the fixed income market post-pandemic and post-quantitative easing, if you will, because volatility brings opportunities in relative value. And those have been largely lacking for quite some time, but maybe you can expand on that a little bit Absolutely, I, mean, I think
1: the ability to to do these trades quickly, rapidly, and like you know, we've been noticing the market in the last couple of weeks. You're moving 10 basis points in a day. So sometimes the whole portfolio optimization of saying okay, because people need to understand when you buy something in fixed income, you usually have to sell two things to fund it. It could be money market and another position you're doing in the portfolio. With the use of the derivatives, you can just basically move your duration to where it needs to be, and then work out the trades after. So that efficiency is really really strong. The other thing on the retail side, which is interesting is there's like a new class. It's it's a couple of years it's existed, but there's a new regulatory framework for what we call liquid alternatives. And in those products, the use of derivatives is a little bit more liberalized. Right now for mutual funds and segregated funds, there's a lot of regulatory, I wouldn't say capital, but you have to put some money aside. You have to have the cash underlining most of the time if you want to do a derivative position in your portfolio with these new product classes, liquid alternatives, you can do a little bit more alpha generation on the portfolio without having the same constraints. So it really unties the hands of the managers. And as I sit on the fence between our institutional business and our insurance company, for the insurance company, it's absolutely great because you're able to optimize your leverage within the firm and and then move quickly to do so. And then you can unwind these trades when you find the paper. Because, you know, we're dealing with private placements, real estate investments, and sometimes derivatives are used as a temporary duration plug for the financing of those trades also.
0: And Dominic, and you're, you're touching upon your firm and different products that are offered to clients. Are there challenges in terms of the investment policies and approvals? Is education still a big part of that when it comes to derivatives?
1: I would say always. I mean, people have this fear of what derivatives represent. I think the Bank of Canada since 2008 has done a great job regulatory-wise to kind of ring-fence that. The banks also have done a great job doing that. So I think clients are more comfortable with it. I think today people understand you're better off clearing in an exchange than facing a counterparty. We've had, unfortunately, over the last couple of years, some stories, I would say not much domestically, but more in the international markets. So I think that aspect is coming out. And I think the support we receive also from the financial institutions that that the exchange is now a really important mechanism in the marketplace. Just like when the Bank of Canada, you know, reiterates that the repo market, uh, the plumbing, if you like, of the financial system is really important. Well, the Montreal Exchange is an extension of that. So I think that also it makes it an easier sell uh, for the clients. But still, there is some regulatory red tape, I would say, with certain types of products to try to protect the investor from maybe somebody who could use it to, you know, undo leverage in a portfolio or something in that order. So that makes it sometimes a little bit more complicated, but clients are getting more and more comfortable. The other thing I would just say also is that Canadian clients now are no longer just invested in Canada. They're much more, I would say, aware of what's happening in the rest of the world and they're dealing with managers that are in the United States or in Europe. So with that type of exposure, I think they've they've understood that derivatives are part of a portfolio and they work well. So I think the openness is a little bit better, but there's still a little bit of education to do for sure, Rob.
0: I appreciate that, Dom. And you touched a little bit on the liquid alt side of the business, so which naturally that's going to enable the masses and, and retail to be able to be involved in these portfolios that that are going to be more active in nature. In your view, and, and maybe even for you, Kevin, we talked a little bit about passive investing versus with the advent of increased volatility and, and the current environment that we're in, and likely maybe a, a you know rising rate environment for the foreseeable future, does active management become more of an important role?
1: We went into this environment where we had price certainty. If anything bad happened, the central banks would step in. And I think you had inflation certainty, right? There was none or very limited. So it comes back to our first part of the conversation. You were not that worried about price fluctuations over two, three years because you didn't have this inflation thing that gives you price uncertainty. So now that's in the equation. So all the old people like me that started in the 90s are going to say that this is the, going to be the heyday. I think hedge funds, which have underperformed recently, and maybe you guys want to correct me on that if it's not all the sectors of hedge funds, but I don't think they've done a good a job risk adjusted. You know, there a lot of compression on fees. And I think people have done synthetics in that space. Now I think that all that comes back because you're going to have to manage that volatility. And unfortunately, I don't think on a passive side, you can manage that volatility as well as an experienced manager. So maybe it's going to be a little bit of a return from the strict passive investment more to active management, which is going to eke out a better alpha over your portfolio. So that's how I would view it.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that
2: That really dovetails with my view on passive versus active. It's always talked about as such a black and white question. Are you a passive investor? You're an active investor. But there's no reason why you can't have a mostly passive bond portfolio that has an active overlay every now and again or all the time. It doesn't really matter. Um, so, historically, much of the bond assets in Canada have been passively invested, there's nothing wrong with that, it's served most institutions quite well. But with the return of volatility comes the return of uh, speculative opportunities, and you can do that via an active overlay, even if it's only once a year, or it's uh, maybe it's every day, it doesn't really matter to me. The matter is rather a question of, you have this passive bond portfolio that has an active overlay. So you can shift duration, as you used in your example, Dominic, via an overlay strategy. And there's no need to sell your core holdings that you went to a lot of trouble to to accumulate over multiple years. You can just sell some tens via futures and buy the same notional amount of fives. And you've changed your duration in one easy transaction. When you want to unwind it, it's the same transaction except in reverse. And that can be an active strategy, it can add value, but it doesn't have to be a decision of, am I an active or a passive
0: investor? I agree with that. Yeah. So, gentlemen, as you know, Dom, you touched upon it a little bit before, the the world's connected, right? So for us at TMX, we're looking to we're looking to serve the world, our global clients, and offer products and services that are appealing to them. So for the listeners on the on the podcast here today, what should they know about the Canadian fixed income markets? Like what are the the quirks, the behaviors, any unique characteristics that you might find interesting and, and have a takeaway for the listeners. And you touched a little bit on on the 30-year point Dom, before, but can you elaborate on, on a couple of those factors?
1: Yeah, I think the Canadian market is one that sometimes foreigners don't have a good handle on. I think you need boots on the ground. It's an OTC market that is, I would say, an insider market and not an illegal insider market, but just the way issues are brought to the market, the way the information circulates within the Canadian context, it's not the same thing as if you're trading in Europe or in the United States. So I think boots on the ground are really really important. You also have to have an understanding of the historical context of the curve. You know, you talk about that technical point in the 30-year. It's not really a Canada curve in the 30-year. It's a provincial issuance curve. And that's something that I think some investors now, I think they're more aware of it because when we started the business in the 1990s, even some central banks wouldn't even touch provincial investing. And now they obviously are, are very heavy in that investing, but it's understand all those little dynamics. You don't have the same thing on the US side or in Europe and you have a lot less players Let's say liquid players in Canada. So you have to understand how that affects your your bid to offer spread. It gives you opportunity though because because you have bid to offer spread and it can be a, sometimes a little bit of a more specialized market. There is value in trading Canada. You can you can generate some alpha on it. And I would just for the Canadian managers like all of them, I find that when I travel or when I see we're, we have nothing to be ashamed about. I mean, the quality of the Canadian managers is really really high because we're fighting in this I would say sometimes liquid, sometimes insider market on the on the rate side. And I think the Canadian managers have to work a little harder. I don't want to upset my American and friends that are portfolio managers, but I think the Canadians got to have to work a little harder to echo to out the same returns.
0: Over to you, Kevin, maybe you could touch a bit upon the mortgage market in Canada, because that's one of the pivotal areas for us to develop the five-year point of the, the yield curve in Canada.
2: I do agree with virtually everything that Dominic just said. Uh, boots on the ground is very important because it's a it is a bit of a quirky market. I mean, we've talked already about long term bond yields, and that is dominated by domestic funds. I think I wrote a piece a while ago called uh, "Basically Long Term Canada Bonds." These yields are not for you. So if you don't get the the hedging properties for liability hedging, those yields are just typically too low for for the average investor. But In terms of having boots on the ground, one thing that any investor in Canada should understand is that there's an unusual mortgage market that puts a refinancing risk on the homeowner rather than matching the amortization period with the term of the mortgage as it's done in the United States. So in terms of damage being done to the financial well-being of homeowners at this point, mortgage payers whether they're in a variable rate mortgage, which is they're going to see right away once the Bank of Canada raises rates a little bit more, or in their mortgage reset, which is typically in five years, that financial damage is done already to the mortgage payer. I calculated that as being about $285 a month on a $500,000 mortgage that amortizes over 25 years, which is probably somewhat typical for a mortgage in Canada. So that's... That's essentially discretionary to spending that's going to disappear, and economic multipliers work in the uh, work in the opposite direction with that because you're basically just paying more in interest. It's not like you go out and spend that money at uh, your local cafe or something, and somebody gets a job out of it, and then they spend money. The multipliers actually contract when it goes to interest payments. So, the long and short of that is that I think monetary policy eventually it may take a couple of years, but is going to be much more effective in Canada than it is in in the U.S., for instance. Where, if you have a 30 year mortgage and a 30 year amortization, it doesn't really matter what happens to mortgage rates. Certainly, demand will fall off in the housing market because new buyers can't afford as much. But even existing owners will have to pay more in Canada. Another thing to note, that's quite uh, quite related is that consumer debt to GDP in Canada has continued to rise even after 2008 while the U.S. retreated, so Canadian consumers are very indebted. It's mo- Most of it's mortgage debt, so it's not necessarily the, the worst kind of debt. Uh, it's not just profligate consumption or anything like that. But So about 110% of GDP versus 80% in the USA, it's much higher than all other advanced economies in fact. <laughs> So monetary policy should work better in Canada by making the cost of that debt higher, assuming that debt is in some way sensitive to interest rates. To note, uh, although I'm not sort of suggesting that there's going to be a housing crash in Canada, but the USA was uh, less than 100% when the housing bubble burst there due to too much mortgage debt. I don't think Canada's in anything near that same situation, but debt is certainly high. So monetary policy should work better and faster in Canada. All excellent points. I agree with that.
0: Thanks, Kevin. Well, Dominic, Kevin, any last thoughts for the the listeners that we, you know, we went over the, the use of derivatives, an important part of the, in, in the investment portfolios, the quirks of the Canadian market, anything else you want to share with us?
1: Well, I'd like to say that I'm, I'm really excited about the concept or the idea of, of a credit derivative. I think you guys are looking at that possibility moving forward, so I don't know if I'm if you guys are talking about it yet, but I think that's really exciting for for the market. We need a credit derivative tool, a liquid transparent in Canada. So that would be great for uh, for portfolio construction. And I always say you guys should have like an NHL futures when next time the Habs are going to win the cup type of futures. But uh, you guys keep shooting me down with that. That's not happening, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, have a, I have a feeling the credit one will come first. Uh, the, um, but the NHL futures, that's that's been on our radar for many, many years. <laughs> But maybe expand on that, Dominic. We were talking about yes, we're in the design phase of of working with the industry for a credit uh, a credit future and and the importance of having one. But what can you share, you know, with with our listeners in terms of the. The corporate market here in Canada. See,
1: that's, it's, it's a bit, I think Kevin was talking about it before, where you know you have a buy and hold in your portfolio because it's hard to find issuers. So it'd be great to have ability to to buy a basket of it and then trade out of it, go back into single name selection. Uh, you're, you're overweight. A lot of the, I would say, insurance companies are looking for using leverage for credit. So it's a great tool for them to have that. And also for issuers, it could be something where they could use as a hedge relative to their credit spreads too when they need to come to the marketplace. So the only thing is, once again, it comes back to the fact that Canada is a bit of an opaque market. So you want to make sure that the product is designed. And the first iterations I saw, it seems to make a lot of sense the way you guys are approaching the issue. But you don't want to give somebody an opportunity to manipulate that basket, where then that could be you know a, a breach of confidence, let's say with the investors after, on what that means, because we do have access to information with boots on the ground in Canada, that maybe it's not the same uh, structure as the US and Europe. So that's maybe the side note I think we need to think about, but I think if there's a lot of possibilities for a product like that.
0: Oh, excellent points, Dominic, and I think you, you've touched upon it multiple times. That's the uniqueness of the Canadian market, and when any new products come to market, that needs to be top of mind.
2: I think that product would be quite important for for building liquidity. I mean that market has famously suffered from from liquidity in in some instances. And I think that scares away some investors who think of it as being a kind of an insider's market, that sort of thing. So anything that ends up building liquidity, as well as uh, price discovery alone, as you mentioned, with the the fixed income derivatives, is very important. And I mean, if you talk about an opaque market, the, the prices of uh, corporates are even more opaque than the, the prices of virtually any other bond in Canada at this point. So I, I think that's a, that's a key point as well. I'd love to see a product like that come to market and I think it would draw in new investors to Canada
0: that might have stayed away. Excellent, gentlemen. And th- thanks again. I, I think the trend here is really there's quite a bit of development in the Canadian market and, and the Montreal Exchange has played a role in that. But it's also just the the shift that the Canadian market is becoming more transparent, looking for that efficiency. And and of course, we have the the platform to do so and an essential clearing fashion. And the goal is to essentially take these products to the world, but also have them work with each other right, and create those efficient trading strategies in one ecosystem. With that, gentlemen, I think this was a fantastic and great conversation. Uh, I'm so appreciative of all the information that you shared with us. We've got some notes to take away at TMX, and that's really just around NHL futures and some other ideas (laughs) that Dom has. Adam, I do know that you're an avid musician and I I believe it's a guitarist. Things are opening up. Uh, Do you want the listeners to come see your next show?
1: Yeah, well, I play with a band and we had to cancel tonight's show because of uh, bass players got COVID, but we'll (laughs) be playing at uh, Bar 132 next month and at uh, Le Cerber in Saint-Jerome in the month of August. So yeah, so I try to stay active instead of getting into trouble doing other stuff. The family and wife is pretty happy that I stick with music. So
0: that's what I do. That's fantastic. I'm so so glad to hear that you're back on the road. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, Again, TMX presents the podcast. Thank you to our guests, Kevin and Dominic for joining us and sharing their views. I do wanna share with the the listeners that if there's any information that you'd like on the Montreal Exchange products, and also if you'd like to read some of Kevin's articles that he's published over the last couple of years, please visit m-x.ca. And for more insights from Capital Markets leaders and my TMX colleagues, please visit tmx.com forward slash POV.